You guys can have a seat. <laughs> a quick update. I know people have been praying for Bren. Bren is, uh, seems to be getting a little bit better here and, here and now, kind of figuring st- things out a little bit still, but uh, continue in prayer. Um, he will be back soon, he told me to say. Uh, this week he was still feeling a little tired and kind of run down, so he asked me to come up and, and kind of pinch it a little bit. So, But those of you who've been praying for him, just so you know, uh, seems to be getting a little bit better here and, here and again, so just continue to pray and, and, and be thoughtful of him. After this, uh, we're jumping into the book of 1 Corinthians, which is awesome if you're not a heretic. So that's a wonderful thing. You're going to be super excited about that. Um, I love that book and am really excited about it. But today, I wanted to pause for a second and look at communion. There are quite a few things that we do, maybe ritualistically, that we forget have a really big intention and purpose. And so this is one of those actions or one of those things. And a few years ago, I kind of had this process of trying to figure out, why do we even do it? Like it just, I mean, it doesn't fill anybody up, I don't think, unless you have a super tiny stomach. And it's not like it's something that is like so emphasized everywhere I've ever been. So I'm trying to figure out like, what is this action? What's this action that we're doing in communion? Now, there was a guy kind of a philosopher, apologist, Justin Martyr back in the day. And uh, he was uh, in the second century. And the early church had this emphasis on communion. Um, They called it the Eucharist or Thanksgiving, however you want to look at it. But it was this wonderful thing that they did where they saw it as a re-upping of their commitment to Jesus, like a renewal of vows almost. And I was like, man, that is so big. And I I, I remember the first time I, I told God, like, I want to live for you. And I remember that, what that was like for me. And I remember thinking, like, oh, man, I'm giving everything up. Like, this is huge. I can't believe it. And then if communion is that, every time I do it, then I should probably think about that. I should probably realize that, like, when I'm taking communion, I'm saying, God, here's my life again. Like, here it is. All of me. I'm right here. It's a renewal of those vows. It's a recognition that I am Christ, that I am not my own. And so as I started to look at it, I started to realize that, and most, most people know this, that it kind of institutes from Jesus's, one of Jesus' last days where he's got his, his followers around him, his closest people, his disciples, and they're sitting around a table and he takes a, the bread and he breaks and he says, this is my body broken for you. And then he takes a cup, right? And then it's a couple cups down, the Passover meal and all this. So there's details to it that we've gone through here, actually, a couple of times. But what I want to emphasize today is this. What I want to talk about today is this. Is this something for you? When you take communion, is it a five-second, remember Jesus, go back to my seat, and I'm done? Or is this something where you realize, like, you're placing yourself on the altar again? You're giving yourself again to the Lord. You're saying, Lord, I want all the things that are between you and I or me and other people who are yours. I want them all gone. I want to just be totally free. Put myself on the altar for you. I'm offering myself. And in return, I'm receiving the life that you gave for me. Because that is the exchange. And as we look at it, we're going to be kind of be, 
I'm mainly taking most of this from 1 Corinthians 11. But like I said, we're going to be going into 1 Corinthians, so we'll hit this again. I'm not going to read it. I just want to talk a little bit about it. One of the things, there's kind of three elements. Examination, the actual practice of taking the communion itself, the remembrance. And then at the end, it's this realization that there's something to come. And that end piece kind of gets de-emphasized. But we're going to walk through each phase. The examination idea is this. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, don't take this lightly. Because if you take this lightly, you actually heap judgment upon yourself. Now, what does that mean? Because as a Christian, aren't we told there is no more condemnation in Christ? How do you heap judgment on yourself if you take something lightly? Well, think about it. Think about for a second what we're saying we believe. See, 1 Corinthians, in the beginning, talks about how if Jesus isn't real... And, I, and, I've, and I've heard people say this before, and I understand what they mean by it when they say, like, oh, if Jesus isn't real, I just had a really good life. That's not what 1 Corinthians says. It says that if we believe in Christ, if we believe that he died on the cross and he rose again, if we believe that and it turns out it's not true, then Christians are the ones to be most pitied. Let that sink in for a second. This isn't about a good life. This is not about a good life. Following Jesus has never been, it's just a better way. Following Jesus is about, is this real or not? Do I believe this or do I not? And why? Because I'm just going to give you baseball card stats for a second, okay? Of the whole thing. God, creator of all things, okay? We believe he left a perfect place to come and put on a body. That is ridiculous. That is absurd. The wisdom that is at present in the world would look at that and say, that makes you a little nuts to think that. Now, let's keep going. Not only that, not only did he put on a body, but he wasn't some rich dude. He wasn't somebody who was well thought of necessarily by all. He wasn't prominent. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't use his powers to gather a bunch of people to do what he wanted them to do in his bidding on the earth. That wasn't him. In fact, he didn't even start his ministry on earth, according to the scriptures, until he was about 30. Most of the pastors that we have known began their ministry before Jesus did. Jesus wasn't somebody who was so prominent when he came to earth that we look at him and we go, oh, that's the king of the universe. That guy who's got gnarled hands. His hair's a little matty. His feet a little dirty. He doesn't look like what I think he would look like. In fact, Isaiah says that he had nothing in his appearance that would like draw you to him. Now we believe that was the king of the universe? Not only that, but we believe that that king of the universe allowed himself to be hung on a cross, a, a device of torture and killing, by a society that's been dead now for thousands of years, the Romans. So we believe that the king, the one whom everything was created through, put on a body, that's nuts, was totally kind of normal, that's nuts, then did this thing where he allowed people to kill him? Why would we believe that? Why would we believe then too that he rose again from the dead? See, what we believe is not something that just makes sense. 
to a normal person. If you believe that, you're not normal. If you believe that, you're different. You're weird. And if you try to make that normal, it's never going to work. No. Do you know why we believe that, most of us? You may not even know why, but this is probably why. Because you know you're not a good person and you know you needed something. You know you needed something abnormal to save you from what you were. You know you needed somebody to come down on your level and be here with you. You know you needed that. That you see in Jesus a glory that you could have never seen yourself because you know you can't muster it up. Because you know you'll never see love like the sacrifice of Jesus. Because nobody will ever look at you the way that Jesus will look at you. Because you know that inside of yourself you're not whole. No matter how many people try to find things that make themselves feel better, you know it. Because you get a place, you, you just kind of know it. When you're finally off your phone, when you're finally not watching something and there's that silence and that creeping in like, I'm not okay, you know. And you finally don't numb yourself to everything that's going on around you. You recognize you have a need. You have a need. And desperate people look for something weird or different so they realize they're not normal. Oh my gosh, I need something. I need Jesus. I need him. Oh man, I got to have something different. Okay, I'm going to look for this. What's different? Because everybody in the world seems to be doing this dance of trying to make themselves feel better. But I'm not going to do the dance. I'm not good. You're not good. You need something. That's why you come to Jesus. Not a one of us did him a favor. In fact, the truth of communion, the truth of the gospel, is that my sin was what put him on the cross. That when he was up there and he felt the sins of the world, Part of it was mine. I'm not good. Oh, man. But I can come to a place where instead of trying to make myself feel good about myself, I can look at my brokenness and go, okay, I know something and someone who wants to make me whole. Which is why when we look at communion, when we take the bread and it's Jesus' body broken for us, the crazy part about it is, is that someone else's brokenness brings wholeness to us. And so when we put ourselves on the table, when we put ourselves on the altar, every time we take communion, what we're saying is, here are my broken pieces. I'll take the whole. It's weird. In fact, the early church was accused of cannibalism. You're going to eat a dead guy's flesh and drink a dead guy's blood? That's weird. Ah, but the symbolism is beautiful. Symbolism is beautiful. That's why we don't take it lightly. That's why we come to communion, and that's why the scriptures teach us to examine ourselves. The scriptures teach us to look at ourselves and say, hey, is there something in me that I have separated myself from God? It isn't as if God doesn't know about our sin, right? We know that. But what we're doing is we're humbling ourselves and saying, okay, God, I know you're making me whole. I know you've made me whole, and you're in the process of literally completing that process. But today, I see this in myself. I see the pride, God. 
I see the lust. I see the pain that I'm causing other people. I see those things in myself, God, and I'm giving them to you again because I realize that I need something different. So in a moment here, all I want us to do is take a second to just examine. Is there something in you, in your life, in your actions that you are offending God with and you know it? Have you gone back down an old path? Have you allowed yourself to dive into actions that you know are destructive to you and those around you again? And with that, I want you to ask yourself, is there somebody whom you know you have an issue with that you need to talk through that issue with? Now, that's not in 1 Corinthians 11. That's actually in Matthew 5. Now, why would I talk about talking to someone else before taking communion? Well, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says this. It says that we are to, before we bring our offering and put it on the altar, that we are to go, if, if our brother has something against us, we are to go to them and make it right and then come back and give our offering. In communion, it's the exchange. It's saying, God, I'm putting myself back on the altar. I'm saying to you, this is a renewal of vows. This is a re-upping of a commitment. This is me saying, I've counted the cost again and I'm willing to do this again. I'm willing to die to myself again. I'm willing to show you that you are worth it to me again. That's why we examine ourselves and look at our sin and say, God, here it is. And that's why we examine the relationships around us and we look at those and we make those right. Because we're putting ourselves back on the altar. We're saying, I give you control. I give you, God, me, again. So when I get done praying, in a spirit of silence and examination, I want you to go back and grab the elements and come back to your seat. Don't take them. We're going to take them together. But pray. Ask God, is there something in me, Lord, that I need to confess? And in that prayer, in that examination, in silence, go back, grab the elements, come back to your seat. Let me pray. God, we do not want to make light of what you've done. We do not want to see your actions any smaller than they really are. We want to see exactly what you did. And we recognize, Lord, that we are not good in and of ourselves. Lord, we recognize our need of you. And I pray that we would put ourselves back on the altar again. I praise you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And before we take this bread, I want you to count the cost. I want you to actually think, are you willing to put yourself back up on the altar again? Are you willing to give yourself to him again? There is no halfway. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, you aren't. But once you make this decision, it's going to cost you your life. If you want to follow Jesus, you got to realize where Jesus ended up. Jesus ended up on the cross. And if we say we want to follow Jesus, that may mean that's where you are too. This is not a light commitment. Again, you don't have to be perfect. That's not the point. The point is that you, you make this decision and you say to God, here is everything. I think you can do with it more than I could. 
See, Jesus was the creator of the universe, perfect in everything he did. And no matter who you are or where you are, one of the beauties of the gospel is something that you've heard a million times. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. You have someone who loves you more than you even know, who was willing to leave a perfect place and put on a body. Can you imagine the king of the universe put on a body to know what it was like to be with you and me? The king of the universe allowed himself to have little pains like we go through every day, stubbing your toe, getting cut, when you're reaching behind a dresser drawer. Whatever it might be, the one who created you and saw the mess that we were all in loved us enough to come into the mess to clean it up. In fact, in Colossians 1, it says that he holds everything together in the universe, which means that as he was being nailed to the cross, He is holding together the muscles in the arm, holding the hammer, putting the nail into his hand. He is the one who created the voice box of the the soldiers mocking him. He is the one giving, allowing breath into the lungs of the people mocking him. Do you know why he allowed that? It wasn't because he liked it. It was because that should have been you and me being mocked. That should have been me getting nails in his hands. That should have been me getting a crown of thorns, being whipped, being spit on, being punched in the face. That's me. That's my punishment. I'm not good. I'm not good, and he's perfect. So as you take the bread in a moment, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture something. I want you to picture yourself up on the cross. Picture yourself on the cross. Try to imagine what the agony would be like. Try to imagine what the ridicule would feel like. Just that alone. Not not even the physical pain, but just the ridicule. And then I want you to picture Jesus walking up to you and taking you off the cross and putting himself up there. And then just picture yourself kneeling before him. There's nothing you can say He has provided for you and me something that we could never have had ourselves. We were marked for destruction, and he allowed himself to be destroyed. Let's picture Jesus. Let's picture ourselves up on the cross and then picture Jesus taking us off and then take the bread. Continue picturing yourself kneeling before the cross, and then what I want you to do is inside of that imaginary picture, I want you to look back. Look back away from the cross and see the billions of people kneeling in front of it. Every tribe, every tongue, every nationality, every people group, kneeling before the cross of Christ. Because when he did that, he didn't just do it for you and me, he did it for anybody who would come. The blood is the new covenant between God and man. And when we take this communion cup, what we're saying is that we're taking the life that Christ was giving. Blood symbolizes life. You are a part of a family now. If you're one of the weird ones, 
if you're one of the different ones who say, yeah, I'll put myself on the altar. I'll, I'll give up my life for him. If you're one of those weird people, then I want you to realize something. You're not alone. So what I want you to do is I want you to stand up with me. That's not a metaphor. Go ahead and do it. This might make you feel uncomfortable. But part of what this means is it's also a proclamation publicly. You're saying, not just to yourself and to your God, you're saying to the people around you and anybody else who wants to wander in here, this is what I believe. I'm going to stand on this. I'm going to commit to this. I'm with it. I'm going to do this. You're saying that I've counted the cost and I'm willing to follow him. I've counted the cost as much as I can and I'm willing to give up my life. And there are people around you willing to do the same. That's your family now, your forever family. That's a family you will be worshiping with in heaven. Long after whoever is around moves away, you will find each other back again, kneeling at the foot of Jesus. Because that is what we do. We worship Christ. We're weird, but we're in a family. So I want you to take this cup. I want you to do it with eyes wide open. And I want you to realize, don't worry about the people who aren't taking the cup. I want you to look at the people who are. I want you to realize that this, this, in this present moment, this is the family whom you're around. They might be blood family. They might just be forever family, but this is it. So as you take this cup, okay, I don't want you to do a cheers or anything. You can do whatever you want, really. But what I'm asking you to do is this, is to realize you're a part of something. That what Jesus did was bigger than us. And that for 2,000 years, people have been doing this. And you're doing it today. Let's take the cup in remembrance of him. Okay, stay standing for just a minute. There is a last element to this in 1 Corinthians 11 that gets missed, okay? And that is this, that we are to do this. We are to take communion until he comes. Now, what does that mean? That means that communion is not just about looking back. It's about looking forward. It means that we look forward to the day when the entire world sees Jesus the way that we see him, as glorified God. Right now, the world thinks of Jesus in Christmas. It's a beautiful picture of God coming to earth as a baby in humility, living a life, giving up his life. But when he comes back, he's going to come back as someone whom everybody realizes to be worshipped. See, in Philippians 2, it says that every single knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You just confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the realization of our hope. The realization of our hope is that we will rise with him. It says this, okay? It says that first the dead will rise. The cemeteries emptied of random people here and again. The dead will rise and then we will go and meet him in the air. That's weird. It totally fits the narrative. You guys don't realize something. By this commitment, you will see the fulfillment of perfection. You will realize the wholeness that you've dreamed of and always known you didn't have. There is an end point. No one else knows that the way that we know that. There is hope and joy in this. This is not just a somber looking back on your sin. This is a wonderful looking forward to the time when you forget you even had sin. 
The only realization that you had sin is going to be because Jesus was on the cross and you're like, oh, right. 10,000 years, 20,000 years, whatever it is, there is hope. Can you, can you see that? Is there hope in you? You believe the craziest thing that's ever been true. Those of you who just took the cup and the bread with me, you just said you're willing to die to be with Jesus. There is hope. This is not in vain. You will see the fulfillment. There will be a celebration like you and I have never experienced before. And now you walk with God. Now what I want to do here in a second is something that about five of you are comfortable with. I'm not going to tell you who you are. You already know. Five of you are this kind of extrovert. I want you to actually feel a welling up of joy. I want you to yell, dance, as long as David doesn't dance too much because I'm worried about the people around him. That's my brother right there. I want you to do what you know is a welling up of joy in you. You know why? Because if you're so scared about the people around you in this room, I want you to know that you just symbolically ate someone's flesh and drank someone's blood. You don't need to be scared of what they think of you. They already think little of you if they think that's weird. You're good. Right now, allow yourself to celebrate, okay? Now, I get that it's going to make you uncomfortable. Overcome that for a moment. When I count to three, well, first of all, loosen up a little bit, okay? Like, stretch out like you're going to need it, all right? A couple of you, you're going to need to make sure you got some like, elbow room. I'm looking at Andy back there. I'm thinking, man, that post is done. But I want you to know this. There is so much joy here. And when we experience this fulfillment, you guys, there's going to be no more fear. There's going to be no more of that brokenness. There's going to be no more of that experience. It's gone forever. It's a memory that we won't even remember. It's that beautiful. You guys, this is reality. Life with God. And as we do it, we do so with joy, knowing that we gave up a broken life to get a wholeness we never could have gotten any other way. And the way that God did it, he did it by coming down, compassionately looking at you in every way of who you are. And he loves you and he did it for you, but he only did it for you. He did it for all of us. And he's going to send us to a place where we can't even know how good it is. So when I counted three, I want you to experience that overflow. I keep saying that. I got about five more minutes in the sermon. That's why I'm doing, no, I'm just joking. But let's do it. When I count to three, I want you to celebrate. So one, two, three. 